You're listening to audio from Highland Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. To find out more about Highland, go to www.hbcwaco.org. This last about five weeks or so, we have been putting two words against each other, kind of pitting them against each other. Really, those two words um, often, or maybe always, really like the, the tension in which we live our lives anyway as followers of Christ. So we were, we're choosing some words like, like wisdom or, or foolishness or truth or deception, um, his mercy or, or, or my mess. And this morning, as we wrap up this series that we've been in, First Timothy, uh, called Over, here's the two words I want us to put against each other. It's, it's eternity over the temporary. By God's grace, choosing eternal things over temporary things. By the power of the Spirit, choosing eternal over temporary I don't know about you, but my, my heroes in life are missionaries, men and women who have left the comforts of, of their nation. Primarily, I'm considering those who've left the comforts of, of this nation and have gone to live their life for the sake of the gospel, just to, to burn out for the sake of the gospel somewhere else around the world, to share the gospel, to be the light of Christ. There is one missionary that that his story just moves me, his family's story just moves me, and it's Adoniram Judson. It, it is said by, by missiologists that he was probably, if not the first, one of the very first Americans to leave U.S. soil to serve as a missionary. Uh, he was 24 years old back in 1813 and left the U.S., a very young, prospering nation, to move to Burma, uh, to Myanmar, to bear witness to the resurrected Christ. Before he left, he was dating a girl named Anne and he wanted to marry Anne and then bring Anne with him to, to Burma. And so Adoniram Judson sat down and wrote a letter to, to his potential future father-in-law, to Anne's dad, to, to seek his permission to marry Anne, to marry his girlfriend, to marry his future father-in-law's daughter. Here, here's the letter that he sent, just a portion of the letter he sent. You'll see it on the screen behind me as he sought his permission to marry Anne. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean to the fatal influence of the climate, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. <laughs> I'm no wordsmith, nor am I a great relationship counselor. But younger brothers in the room, can I advise you on two things? One, don't write a letter. It's always better to seek permission of your future father-in-law in person. Number two, don't use any of these words that we just heard just then from Adoniram. These aren't really good words to, to use when you're seeking the permission of this young woman's hand. When I asked Jennifer's dad for permission to marry Jennifer, I, I did not emphasize hardships or sufferings or dangers or fatal climates, or violent deaths. In fact, I was sitting with them by their swimming pool, 
trying to convince him, sure, I'd make enough money as a youth minister to be able to provide for, for your daughter. Adoniram continued to, to write this letter, and here's some more of it. Can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of the perishing immortal souls for the glory of God. Can you consent to all of this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness? They got married in 1812 and moved to Burma in 1813. Within 15 years of moving to Burma, Adoniram would be imprisoned for two years tortured to such severity that he would never fully be able to walk again. They buried seven children there. And at age 36, almost in a completion to a prophetic consent letter, Anne died of smallpox. Adoniram Judson would stay there in Burma until he was 61 years old, where he would be the very first one to translate the Bible into Burmese. And again, at age 61, would die there on the shoreline of the Bay of Bengal. We might hear their story and feel sad for them or feel sorry for them. They gave up so much. They buried seven children and to spend the entirety of of their lives there in Burma for the sake of the gospel. We might, we might hear that story and have a tinge of sadness, of, of sorrow for them. And yet I wonder if Adoniram and Anne actually might feel sorry for us. For they held on to eternal things and they still are. And many of us, we hold on to the temporary and it's quickly slipping away. There will never be a regret in our lives when we choose by the grace of God eternity and eternal things over that which is temporary. We're gonna go together to the book of 1 Timothy. That's where we've been the last five weeks. And so I encourage you to go with me there. The very, very last chapter, if you're kind of new to the Bible, um, there's only five books in the whole Bible that start with the letter T and they're all grouped together for you. So that was really nice. Got the Thessalonians, the Timothys, and Titus. So if you'd turn with me, please, about two-thirds of the way through the New Testament to 1 Timothy chapter 6. If you forgot your copy of God's Word today, perhaps you want to share it with someone next to you, or, or if you can do so without distraction, go to your, your smartphone or your device this morning, go to your Bible app, and let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 6, uh, verse 17. We're just going to kind of wrap up these last few verses of 1 Timothy chapter 6. Some of it will be... Um, Repetition from two weeks ago, which I don't think is ever bad to do, but we're going to review a few of the things that we have already preached through together. First Timothy chapter six, verse 17, as for the rich in this present age, and if you weren't here two weeks ago, let me just kindly, lovingly remind you that, that you're rich. Um, you may not feel rich today, and we often don't feel rich because we compare up instead of comparing across, but if we were to compare across I think we would probably all walk out of this house pretty convinced that we're, we're rich people. And the word rich really means right here, again, rich in this present age. That word rich means that, that you live in such a way that, that you have more than you actually need. That's what it means to be, to be rich. We think that being rich is like having hundreds of times more than what we actually need. But to be rich means that you actually have things left over after you pay for the roof of your house and clothes 
and, and the necessities of life. So I would think that most of us, probably 99% of us in this room, we're, we're rich in this present age. For the rich in this present age, I want you to charge them or, or really challenge them not to be arrogant, don't be, don't be prideful, don't be haughty, and do not set your hope on the uncertainty of riches, but instead set your hope on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. In other words, Paul is telling Timothy, the Spirit of the Lord is telling us this morning, don't, don't plant your feet on the shiftiness of money and things. Instead, plant your feet and actually the totality of your life on that which will not change upon God himself, for he is our steady provider. We can, in confidence, set our hope completely and fully on him. Then verse 18, we are to do good. They who are rich, they are to do good, to be rich in good works and to be generous and to be ready to share. So we're starting to see Paul wrap up this letter to to, to Timothy, and he's beginning to talk about eternal things versus temporary things. You're going to be, begin to see him talking about how, how quickly this life is, is over for us and how often we hold on to temporary things, even though every day those temporary things are, are leaving us. They're fleeing from us. And so if you're taking notes this morning, perhaps you want to write this down. Our life is a mist and a moment, so let's live with eternity in mind. That's what James says. Our our life is just like the morning mist. It's here and it's gone. By comparison to all eternity past and eternity forward, our 70 or 75 years of life, plus or minus, it's it's gone. We're, We're here a moment. Life is a mist for us. It's a moment for us. Therefore, let's live with eternity in mind. And Paul gives us four really clear, practical ways in how we might live with eternity in mind, how we might choose the eternal over the temporary. And again, if you're here two weeks ago, we went through these, but to me, it's worth going through them again because it's alive and it's active and it's good for us. You know, God's word always recalibrates our hearts. And and often I find my heart needing recalibration about every hour. So maybe every two weeks isn't, isn't that bad for us to go back through this. So our life is a mist and a moment. So let's live with eternity in mind. How do we live with eternity in mind? Here's the first thing Paul says, do good. I mean, you don't have to dig really deep into the Greek for that. It's just do good. In other words, do good with what you have, like truly good, not superficial good, not shallow good, not, not petty good, but, but truly good. And, and what is good? It's noble things. It's do excellent things, do things that have high value or great value. And in doing so, you will live with eternity in mind. Here's the second thing that Paul says, be rich in good works. So how do we live with eternity in mind? How do we choose eternal things over temporary things? We, we, we make the choice to be rich in good works. Now, the operative word here in the scripture is the word works. In other words, it's, it's an action word. We're to be rich in good works, meaning get good things done, not just don't be rich in good intentions. I mean, think how incredible the world would be if the church actually did what it intended to do. If we did what we intended to do. So Paul is saying here, no, no, I'm not talking about good intentions or good ideas or like, like great dreams for the Lord. I'm saying to, to get things done, be rich in good works. And, and it's almost a play on words here. Paul is saying, if you're gonna be wealthy in something, then, then be wealthy in doing good things. If you're gonna be rich in something, then, then be rich in doing good things for the good 
of others. Here's the third very practical thing that Paul gives us and how we can live with eternity in mind. Be, be generous. Your Bible might say there, be excessive. Be bountiful. Be, be over the top. Ready to share with anybody at any time with generosity, with kindness, with over-the-top distribution of, of encouragement, of, of grace. And it might mean money. It might be things. Ready to meet any need at any time for any person. Acting toward others in the same generosity in which God has acted towards you. This is what it means to be excessive or to be, to be generous, to be over-the-top. And here's the fourth thing that we, we see here. Be ready to share. Be ready to share. Uh, if you didn't catch this two weeks ago, that, that word is just really just one Greek word, a koinonikos. And koinonia means like common ground, um, the ground on which we, we stand together. It means fellowship. It means community. So here Paul just uses one word and we translate that, be ready to share. And so kind of the nuance of that would be be ready to, to be the church. Be ready to be the family. Be ready to, to share with those. And Paul will say this to, to the church at Galatia. He'll say, you know, don't, don't be a, grow weary in, in doing good. Be good to all, especially those within the household of faith. And so it's this picture of, of being the church, of being the family to one another. Our life is a mist and a moment. So here's four ways we can live with eternity in mind. First Timothy Chapter six, let me just read verse 18 again so it sinks down deep into us. They are, meaning the rich, meaning we, are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, to be ready to share. And this is a key word, thus. This is the bridge word, thus. And here comes eternity, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Store up treasure, it, means to, it literally means to amass a fund or, or a treasure. And then Paul says here in verse 19, for the future. In other words, amass or invest in a good sound fund for the life that is to come. That, that's a very important word, thus. And so do all these things in light of eternity. Here's some very practical things you can do because or since this is coming, since in doing so, thus you're storing up for, for a future life, for the life that is truly life. And of course, Paul is talking about the kingdom of God. But I just wrote this question down to my heart and maybe for your heart this morning for us to wrestle with today or this week. What if the point of this life was simply to prepare for the next? If you're here today as an 18-year-old or a 20-year-old or a 24-year-old or maybe a 70-year-old and you're still wondering, what's my purpose? Like, why, why do I exist? Why am I here? What if the, the answer to that very deep philosophical existential question is that you're here really, the point of this life is to prepare for the next. That seems to be, I think what Paul is saying here, that's why he says here in verse 19, to take hold of that which is truly life. In other words, to use this life to prepare yourself, and I might add in light of the context of verse 18, to prepare for, for others as well for the future life, which is the eternal life, which is Christ's heaven. So let me give you a little subpoint to that. Then how we live today ripples into eternity. The choices that we made this weekend, the choices that we make today, how we choose to live 
our lives this week as the people of God here in Waco, as the redeemed community in our, in our county, how we choose to live life, when we choose eternal, eternal things over temporal things, those things just ripple into eternity. What, what if the point of this life, the purpose of this life really was just to prepare for the next life, to be prepared for the life that is to come? Because I'm, I'm convinced, Highland, that we've been sold a lie. I'm pretty convinced in our culture today that we have been sold a tragic bill of goods that that says to us, our culture says, just invest in everything here. Invest in your entertainment here. Invest in bigger things here. Invest in unique and fun experiences here. Get the very most out of life. You need to invest in your happiness here. Listen to every advertisement this week. Listen to every commercial this week. Pay attention to every pop-up ad on your computer this week. Because every one of them, I would say, they constantly leverage this desire that we all have in this room to be happy now. To feel fully alive now. To be comfortable now. To have great conveniences now. Maximize your life now. But what if the point of this life was to prepare for the next? Jesus was teaching really intensely. I'm not sure what other way he does teach, but he was teaching really intensely, like hardcore preaching in Luke chapter 12. And this is where he makes that statement why do you fear people? Why do you worry about people? They can't cast you into hell. But you need to fear God, he said. He can cast you into hell. Why are you doing things in darkness? Because there's gonna be a great light that exposes everything that you've done in darkness. Then in intensity again, he says that that you will face persecution. You will be put up on trial. People will mock you. You will be at the point of losing your life and the spirit will give you what to say in that time. In the middle of that unbelievable, intense preaching, in Luke chapter 12, verse 13, let me just, let me just find this and, and read this to you. You'll see it on the screen behind me. Luke chapter 12, verse 13, in the middle of this intensity, Luke 12, 13, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. It's like, what? We're talking about the God who can throw you into hell and persecution and secret sin that's gonna be exposed by light. And all of a sudden, and here it reads almost like someone interrupted him while he was talking. Someone's like, hey, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. We all know this guy, don't we? Right, the awkward question asker. You're like, really? That's not even what we were, we weren't even talking about that. Where did that question come from? Like out of left field questions. It's just something came into his mind and he had to say it before he forgot about it. So he just kind of kind of yelled that out saying, hey, hey, Jesus, tell my brother to do this. And this is probably a younger brother because Mosaic law said that the older brother in inheritance would normally get two thirds of the inheritance. The younger brother would get one third of the inheritance. Being an older brother myself, I find that quite fair. I think that makes a lot of sense. We drove you around. 
we, you know, had to take you to soccer practice and school. And so two thirds, that's as an older brother, that sounds pretty good to me. Can I get an amen from all the older brothers that are here today? Amen. Okay, good. That's kind of what's happening right here. This, this, this younger brother is going, that's not fair. Like that's, that's really not fair. And so I want you to tell my brother to, to do this. Now I want you to catch this. He is not asking Jesus a question about money. He is telling Jesus to agree with what he already thinks. I could preach a whole sermon on that some Sunday. We'll save that for later. Look how Jesus answers this in Luke 12 or 16. He answers this question with a parable. I love when Jesus does this. You'll see this on the screen behind me if you're not, not there yourself, Luke 12, 16. And so he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and I will build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and and all my goods. So I will say to my soul, soul, which is kind of a, you know, you have a lot of money if you're just kind of talking to yourself like that. Soul, soul, you, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Five times. In those three short verses, he uses the pronoun my. Did you catch that? Verse 17, my crops. Verse 18, my barns. Verse 18, my grain. Verse 18, my goods. Interestingly enough, verse 19, my soul. And he thinks that this setup that he has, as you catch this in verse 19, is gonna be here for many years. I mean, I'm gonna enjoy this a long, long, long time. He's gonna be lulled into his temporariness by the four expressions of the good life. Eat, take a nap, drink, and just be happy. Now, if we're to look at this man's life through the lens of temporary-driven America, we would say, man, what a wise guy. Like, what a good investor. Like, he probably listens to Dave Ramsey. Like, he has something set aside. Like, he's kind of, he has his savings. He's, he's building things up. He, he, he's, he's a brilliant investor. He's a planner. He's, he's a saver. What a smart guy this is. He took all these things that he had, and he's kind of reinvested into himself. And now there's just more and more things. What a smart guy this must be. And look what Jesus says in Luke chapter, uh, chapter 12, verse, verse 20. But God said to him, fool, you fool. This night, your soul, you thought it was, you called it my soul, but your soul is required of you. In other words, I have your soul. And all these things that you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. As Americans, we think long-term. As Christians, we don't think long-term enough. He thought this is how he was gonna be set. I'm gonna take naps. I'm gonna eat, I'm gonna drink. I'm just gonna be so happy for so many years. And that night, his soul was required of him. Coleman Mockler was the CEO of Gillette, the the razor company. It's a 117-year-old corporation. When he took over, Gillette wasn't doing very well. So Mockler stepped in and created all these kind of new ideas. I'm about to, to date myself when I say this. And if you nod your head, you're about to date yourself also. But he, he's the one that developed the Gillette Sensor Razor. 
Okay, old man, old guy over there. Okay, old guy here also. I remember the Gillette Sensor. I think this was like 19, early 1990s, maybe 1980s. He also came up with a slogan, the best a man can get. Anybody remember that, that slogan from, from Gillette, a best? And by the way, brothers, there's so many better things than a straight razor, but, but for Gillette, that was the best that a man, a man could get. And so he developed this, and all of a sudden, the, the stock began to turn around for Gillette. In fact, Mockler's personal stock increased 50-fold over the 16 years that he served there as the CEO. In his 16th year, the, the net value of Gillette was $49 billion. Forbes magazine called him and asked if they could put him on the front cover and asked if he could be interviewed. And so he gladly was, was interviewed as one of the turnaround CEOs of our nation. And there was a picture of him on the front cover of, of Forbes. And so there in the Boston, Massachusetts headquarters of, of Gillette, he received kind of a pre-copy of this letter. So he calls his COO, he calls his CFO, he calls his board members, he calls some of his major stockholders, and he asks them to come to his office so they can see him on the front cover of, of Forbes magazine. This is the turnaround CEO of, of the nation. Again, his personal profits went up 50-fold of, of his investment into Gillette. And so almost like a movie, as he goes up the elevator and walks into his prime real estate office at the top floor of the headquarters, the mid-managers mid and, and the administrators and the, the, the assistants, they were applauding him as he walked down the hall with that Forbes magazine of himself on the front cover. And he's gonna go into his office for the stakeholders and the board members and the CFO and the COO to come in there and meet him. And, and he went into his office and he closed the door and, and the coroner thinks he died before he hit the ground of a massive heart attack. Clinging to the height of his temporariness, he enters into eternity. I don't know if for certain where Mockler's heart was before the Lord. Reading a few of his biographies and some papers about him the last two weeks, I would guess he didn't know Jesus. So maybe it'd be a good time to ask this question. What really does it profit a man to gain the whole world but then to lose your soul? He was holding on to temporary when he was ushered into eternity. First Timothy chapter six, verse 20. You might find it interesting as I get back there that he died at age 61, Mockler. The exact same age that Adoniram Judson passed away, having given everything for the sake of the gospel. He let go of the temporary as he entered into eternity. First Timothy chapter six, we'll wrap this up. Verse 20, the last few verses of this letter that Paul is writing, the last few sentences, that, the letter that Paul is writing to Timothy. It says here, oh, Timothy. And your Bible may not say oh. Uh, your Bible should say oh, because there's a Greek word there, malastah. And malastah is an interesting word. Malastah means very. Or malastah is, is a superlative adverb, and it means especially. And it's a word, a tender word, actually used a father toward a son. It was a word of compassion. It was a word of, of concern. And so Paul, remember Paul earlier in 1 Timothy chapter 1 had called Timothy his, his son in the faith. And so it's a compassionate word, a very tender word, a word of concern. And so if your Bible doesn't have the word O before the word Timothy, go ahead and just write in an O. Or if you want to write in the Greek word, it's malastah. Just write in malastah there. Or an O might be simpler. O Timothy. Verse 
I'm about to speak to you as a son. I'm about to be very compassionate and very tender, especially towards you, very much towards you. And almost as if the father would get down on eye level with his son or his child. He wraps up this letter by saying, oh, Timothy, beloved son, guard that which has been entrusted to you. Guard that deposit that's been placed into you. Guard that gospel, guard that word, guard that truth. Because there'll be some that come to you, young son. And they'll have this, this, this empty chatter, these irreverent babbles, these, these words that are so empty. And they will try to persuade you by their intellectualism, by what they call knowledge. They'll try to contradict this truth that is in your heart, this gospel that is in your heart, God's word that is in your heart, that has been entrusted to you. So, oh, Timothy, guard that word. Oh, Timothy, guard that truth. There will be some that will try to persuade you off of it. And sadly, there will be some, Timothy. Sadly, Highland, there will be some who are persuaded by this so-called intellectualism and knowledge. And they will swerve away from the faith. They will walk away from the faith. So what do we do with that? I think we do with that how Paul, by God's spirit, wrapped up his words to Timothy. Grace be to you. Grace be to you. Would you stand with me, please, and let's pray together. Father, thank you for the joy of being in your presence and in your word that comes to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Could we this week, by your great grace, O God, and could we this week, by the power of your influencing spirit inside of us, choose the eternal over the temporary? Would you give us opportunities today, this week, maybe even the next few moments, to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, to be excessive, to be over the top? to be ready to share, to be ready to be the family, to be the church. We thank you, God, for your presence with us today. In Christ, in Christ alone we pray. Amen.